as far as we can tell, there was an actual real person called Taliesin, uh, alive back in the 6th century, um, who was the chief bard to a very famous legendary early Welsh king by the name of Irien. And Irien was the king of Rheged. Rheged essentially stretched from southern Scotland, more or less, all the way down to around the Wirral. So that whole northwestern coast uh, of what's now England used to be an ancient Welsh kingdom. And it's quite likely that the, the historical Taliesin travelled up from Mid Wales, where he was possibly born, uh, and went to serve at Irien's court, where he composed several praise poems uh, celebrating this great king, Irien. Uh, and those poems may have survived in the 14th century Book of Taliesin. Now, it's impossible to say if these actually are the historical poems that Taliesin composed for Irien. Um, but whichever way, they're very early poems and they do tell us a fair amount about the Welsh bardic tradition. The course, uh, Taliesin Origins, covers one aspect of this historical Taliesin's work and that's the power and influence his poetry had over Irien the king. So uh, it's quite a standard relationship uh, in Celtic societies at this period where you've got a, a highly trained professional bard uh, who was not only a literary craftsman, but was also someone who would um, work as an ambassador, um, a messenger, sometimes maybe even an advocate in legal proceedings, perhaps even working as a storyteller and a teacher. So taking on many cultural roles, uh, as one would expect of a learned class at this time. Uh, but perhaps the Bard's main um, work uh, in the court, in a public sense, was to, uh, to carry out these public ceremonies of praise. And the question was really about um, uh, how much influence did Taliesin have over Irien as Irien's bard? And also, how could Taliesin potentially change Irien merely through praising him publicly in verse? So, I had one very good answer to this question. And the answer contained a reference to a poem by Gitar Glynn. Gitar Glynn was a 15th century poet. Um, and he refers to uh, the legendary Taliesin's ability to transform miserly, tight-fisted patrons. Uh, this is how Gitar Glynn, uh, this 15th century Welsh poet, refers to this quality of Taliesin. Miserly Bran, they used to call him descended of old from the nobility of the north. Bran, obviously a famous chieftain of the old north, and Taliesin, who was no mean magician, transformed him into one better than the three most generous. Now, the three most generous are essentially paragons of generosity in Welsh culture. There was no one who could be more generous than these three, and the bards would compare their patrons to the three most generous. But here, Taliesin is transforming this miserly, tight-fisted Bran uh, into someone better 
than the three most generous even. So Taliesin has some kind of magical power, some divine gift that enables him to transform tight-fisted, miserly patrons into the most generous men in the world. Now, this comes from Guitard Glynn's satire of uh, Harry Griffith, who may not have actually been that tight-fisted or miserly. Guitard Glynn was probably just making fun of Harry Griffith uh, in this poem. But it's interesting that he then goes on to compare himself to Taliesin and says, I will be the same as he, i.e. Taliesin, and transform your nature into something better. So Guitard Glynn perhaps playing on this idea that the bard, the poet, the performing poet in particular, who has stood up in front of the court and begins uh, a ceremony of praise for the chieftain, and in that moment of performance can somehow change and transform the patron uh, into someone better. Now, of course, this is very interesting because it tells us a lot about the Welsh bardic tradition, and not only the Welsh bardic tradition, but the Celtic bardic tradition in general, because we do find uh, similar claims to divine power in the Irish uh, filly, in the Irish bardic tradition also. So it's obviously a general Celtic attitude that bards have, that they can literally transform their patrons through poetry. Now, we might just think that this is some kind of empty claim, um, that it's just a way of the bards bigging themselves up, of Taliesin saying, I've got magic powers, you know, you should give me loads of patronage, you can give me loads of expensive gifts, because uh, through my wizarding abilities, I will make you a better person. There's obviously an element of that uh, that's part of this claim. But there is also something a little bit deeper as well, I think. Um, and that's an acknowledgement by a bard such as Taliesin that the ceremonial praise of a person can actually transform them. We need to consider the role of myth in this public ceremony of praise. So the bard, who is himself an embodiment of an ancient tradition and has um, a traditional authority in that sense, arrives at the court and everybody kind of knows what kind of person the bard is. Yeah, I often describe the bardic figure as some kind of Gandalf. Yeah, big white beard, very wise, magic powers, um, a sense of humour, uh, perceptive, uh, a good teacher, a good communicator. Yeah, the bard turns up at the court. Everybody has this expectation of the bard. Uh, so he embodies this traditional authority. He stands in front of the whole court and we can imagine that not only is the, the patron himself present, but also all of his lieutenants and officers and the people who help him govern his realm, if you like. Uh, and the bard essentially mythologizes the patron in that moment of praise by saying, you are the greatest, you are the most generous, you are the, the greatest hero, and I can compare you to Arthur and Owen and Hercules and all of these other great heroes from the past. You are just like them. You are a paragon of nobility. You are the perfect warrior, uh, generous and violent to your enemies. 
Now, none of that may necessarily be true about the actual human being that's uh, sat on the high chair at the end of the hall in front of the fire. But that's kind of not the point. What the bard is doing here is evoking a particular myth, a particular mythology. And in evoking that mythology is dressing this patron in those mythic clothes. Donning the cloak of heroism is would be one way of putting it. Now, what this does, essentially, is it takes a normal, everyday, mundane human being and compares them to an ideal, compares them to a mythological figure, yeah, the great uh, hero archetype. What that could potentially do to the patron is essentially require them to compare themselves in real life to the actual heroes of the past. That could be one potential effect. So imagine you're the patron, you've been praised uh, until the bard is blue in the face, he's made a big show of it, everybody has heard the bard praise you as the patron uh, with this eloquent, beautiful, highly wrought language, as you'd expect from a highly trained bard such as Taliesin. And then, of course, this might create an expectation, not only in the people around you, but in you yourself, that you somehow do embody the essence of this heroic figure, that you somehow do correspond to this ideal, this heroic ideal that's been uh, created before the audience in the court. Now, I can imagine that some patrons would compare themselves to the heroic ideal and may perhaps try and embody some of those values, some of those um, standards of behaviour. Or if not, if they don't care, then at least the myth is transmitted through the figure of the patron. Yeah? So it serves two purposes. It confirms the ideal uh, and the mythic hero as a figure worthy of attention. But it also could perhaps require that patron to reflect on their own behaviour, perhaps. Of course, there's no guarantee that any patron would actually pay any attention to the mythology that's being evoked in this ceremony of praise. But I would imagine that some of these bards hoped that that would be the case, that their praise would actually cause the transformation of the patron for the better. So that's one very basic, rather simplistic way of looking at the ceremony of praise in the court. But of course, we can see instances where this is perhaps taken a step further where the bard is not only praising the chieftain in an attempt to influence their behaviour uh, and perhaps to evoke this myth in the court so that everybody can appreciate what a real hero looks like. This could also be seen as a far deeper uh, spiritual experience for the patron under the guidance and tutelage of the bard. <clears throat> Now, before I go and look at a, an example of this, I'd like for you to imagine for a moment um, the, the traditional sort of uh, figure of King Arthur. Um, the King Arthur that we all know and love from the Disney films, for example. We all know what kind of 
figure King Arthur is, a perfect embodiment of the heroic ideal, this myth that the bards were so keen on creating. Now King Arthur, in the European myth at least, in the later medieval Arthurian cycle, is served by Merlin, by the Gandalf figure, the bard, the wise man, yeah, the, the poet-prophet. So we have heroic warrior and wise man in a relationship where the wise man is essentially guiding the life of the heroic warrior, of the warrior king. Yeah, Merlin guides the life of Arthur. That relationship, the Arthur-Merlin relationship, was essentially lifted lock, stock and barrel uh, by Geoffrey of Monmouth from the Welsh tradition um, about a thousand years ago now. Um, the Welsh bardic tradition uh, from the time of the historical Taliesin was always evoking this relationship of the bard and the patron, the wise man and the heroic warrior. Yeah? Um, Geoffrey of Monmouth sees this as a rich and, and valuable vein to mine in Welsh mythology and uses it in his own work in creating what has become the modern Arthur and Merlin. So there is already uh, a sense in, not only in the Welsh bardic tradition, but in British culture and European culture in general, that great rulers have wise counsellors. Uh, we can think of Charlemagne and Alcuin, for example, as other good examples of this. So this is nothing new, it's nothing unique to the Welsh bardic tradition. But what we do find in the Welsh bardic tradition is quite a unique expression of this archetypal relationship between warrior and bard. And the best example I've seen of this is from the work of Kindelo Brydydd Mawr, who served Madoc at Maredydd, the king of Powys, back in the middle of the 12th century, around 1150-1155. In one of Kindelo's poems, uh, Kindelo says, Perierin ngovir ngovan vngwaud. So this is from a very long piece of praise. Kindelo, as chief bard, would have got up in the court of Madoc ap Maredydd and performed this long poem. And in the middle of the poem, he says, Madog, the patron, the king of poets, is a pilgrim in the defence and metalwork of my song is a pilgrim in the protective space and metalwork that my song creates. Now on the surface that might just sound like some empty piece of praise but I'm reading a little bit more into this suggestion here mainly because of the use of the word pilgrim. So Madog is a pilgrim is someone who is on a spiritual journey for the health of his own soul, for the health of his own spiritual life, Madog is on a journey within Kindelo Brydid Maur's song. Madog is described as some kind of fictional character almost, who is on a spiritual journey, on a pilgrimage, inside of Kindelo's song. And Kindelo's song is a protective space. It's a, it's a defensive space within this song. And it's also um, a highly wrought, well-crafted song. 
Um, the Welsh bards would often compare their craft to a physical craft, such as metalworking. They saw the ability to craft ornamented poetry in strict metre, with loads of rhymes and alliterations and very complex poetic forms built into the structure of the poetry. So it truly was a craft. They compared that craft to things like metalwork because they saw that it took as much effort uh, to create uh, a poem uh, of this calibre as it would to create, for example, a great piece of jewellery. So Kindelo is saying his finely wrought, elegant poem is a defensive space within which Madog is on a spiritual journey. There's many ways we could interpret this, but one interesting way, if we think of what we've just heard of Taliesin's reputation as someone who could transform even the most miserly, tight-fisted uh, aristocrat, uh, transform them into one of the most generous people on the planet... Bearing that in mind, I would say that there's something uh, a bit deeper going on in Kindelo's poetry here. It's as if Kindelo is setting himself out to be Madog's spiritual guide. And he is guiding Madog through to some kind of spiritual learning or spiritual salvation or you know, we can borrow many Christian concepts here to, to pad out this understanding. But regardless, Kindelo is setting himself out to be a teacher, a guide for Madog on his spiritual journey. And that, that happens within the confines of his poetry. As if Kindelo can bring Madog into his song. As if Kindelo's song actually creates a real physical space. This idea of bardic poetry actually becoming a phenomena in the world, a physical presence, if you like, is something that's hinted at quite strongly in other poems too. And it's this idea that in inviting the patron to wear the, the mythic garments, if you like, to get dressed up in the guise of the heroic ideal, to appear as a great and worthy hero before the gathered court, that that act is somehow inviting the patron, inviting Madog, literally into the land of myth. Yeah, That this mythological realm, this space that's created by Kindelo's song, is a real place, Yeah, a tangible place with real effects. And I think that's a very powerful idea. And I think it's an idea that really is at the heart of much of the bardic activity that we see, not just throughout the poetry of medieval Wales, but specifically in what I would call the Taliesin tradition, as in the tradition of poetry that we find in the book of Taliesin. I think it is important to realise how the medieval Welsh bards conceptualised uh, their bardic power, uh, the effect that they had on uh, these great violent men um, who were essentially uh, sitting on the top of the pile. Um, you couldn't get a more important person than the regional king or chieftain. Uh, and you can see that in many ways 
this need to claim uh, this great myth mythological power was in a sense a way of setting themselves on a par with the chieftain, with the king. And this is something that we also find in the work of Kindelo Brudid Maud, is this idea that Kindelo sets himself up to be his patron's equal. He doesn't really see himself as purely uh, a servant. He is in service of the patron, but in service as a friend, as an equal, as a counsellor, as a guide, as a teacher. If you want to sign up for the free Taliesin Origins video course, then please visit the Celtic Source Facebook page, where you can also find other similar bits of content I've created. Just go to Facebook and search for Celtic Source. If you're interested in signing up for a longer paid course, please visit the website gwilmore.com. That's spelled to G-W-I-L-M for mother, O-R dot com. And you can also watch the video versions of these podcasts, image and text slides included, by subscribing to the Celtic Source YouTube channel. Diolch